Welcome, 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 and happy Easter to everyone in the room. This is a great moment. This is a great, I'm Gavin, by the way, I'm one of the pastors here, if I haven't met you, and I uh, want to welcome you in this place. We are here to celebrate literally the greatest moment in all of human history. So you guys know Easter is not about the bunny, it's not about the eggs, it's not about ham at grandma's this afternoon, those are wonderful things, but Easter is about Jesus Christ, that he is alive. We are here to celebrate this morning the definitive declaration through the resurrection of Jesus that the devil is defeated, that death is overcome, that hell has been conquered, that God's wrath has been satisfied, that sins have been forgiven, that hope has been secured, that heaven is guaranteed for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus because Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. He is alive. I want you to know that, that this truth... Easter truth. What we celebrate this morning is actually the very heart, the very soul, the very essence of Christianity itself. That at the heart of what we believe and anchor our whole lives in is not at its core about principles to live our lives by or a certain philosophy to root our lives in. It's about a living person, Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't about a certain ideology or particular tradition. It's about a living person, Jesus Christ. It's not about a religious system or an institution or an ethical code or an organization surrounding a a book written by a dead man. It's about a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive today in 2022. He's alive. He's the head of the church. He is revealing himself and calling people uh, into his family every day. And Easter is all about Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate that this Jesus is alive. Now, every Easter, what we do, we turn our attention uh, to one of the four biographies about Jesus written in the Bible. We call these the Gospels. And we get to look in at this story uh, again and see what we can glean from it. See what God has to speak to us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you're a part of our church family, uh, you may know we just kicked off a series in the Gospel of Luke that we're going to be in for the better part, probably more than an entire year. So this year we said, hey, let's drop anchor in Luke's Gospel. Uh, look at the resurrection story from Luke chapter 24 and see what we can learn from it. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And here's what I want you to see from the text. This is like immediately after the resurrection. Okay. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus is like first item of business. Just woke up, picture him stretching out. What's he going to do? He shows up to his disciples. He appears to his people. He wants his children to know that he is alive and that he is with him. And here's what I want to contend to us today from this text. That this same Jesus that rose from the grave is still alive today. And that if his priority was to appear to his people, then we can conclude that Jesus is still appearing to his people today. And in this text, we're going to see three ways that Jesus appears to his people that I'm going to contend are still the ways that Jesus appears to us even today, even in 2022, as he is alive right now. And so we're going to walk through them one at a time with our time together. Here's the first one that I want you to see. Jesus is alive and he is appearing through evidence and relationship. Let me show you in the text. We're going to start in verse 36. 
It says, as they were talking about these things, so they are the disciples, these things probably refers to what happened in verses one through 12, which is uh, that Mary and Martha and the other Mary went to the tomb and they found the door open. It's empty. An angel appears to him, says, the Lord is not here. He has risen. They go back. They tell Peter. Peter goes in. He stoops in with his buddy, John. They look. The tomb's empty. They're talking about these things. They're standing around. How did this happen? As they're talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened as any of us would be. And they thought that they saw a spirit. In other words, they literally thought they were seeing a ghost. Verse 38, and then he said to them, quote, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me, he says, and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Real quick, here's what I first want you to notice from this text. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, when the Bible talks about the resurrection, when as Christians we talk about the resurrection, what we're not talking about is sort of a metaphorical resurrection, right? Like grandpa died, but he lives on in our hearts. Like he's still alive in spirit, right? That's a great sentiment. That's not Christian resurrection. When the Bible's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, it is talking about a real historic, physical, bodily resurrection of a real human being, Jesus Christ, okay? So just take like some of the religious sentiment away from today and just acknowledge the reality that we're here talking about just at face level. You have a man, Jesus of Nazareth, as real in history as you and I are real in this room. And the real man really died. Real man, real death. Respiration stopped. Heart stopped. Brain function stopped. He's flatlined. He's dead. Multiple days, good and dead, in the tomb. Three days later, that same physical body became undead. (laughs) Okay? Dead to undead. He's now alive. He's now in a renewed, resurrected body that's going to live for all of eternity. If you take this idea... just at its face, you have to acknowledge it's not sacrilegious to do so. This is crazy, okay? This is, this is a wild claim. Like, this is hard to actually believe if we're honest. This is a crazy idea for us. What I want you to see in the text as well is that it was crazy for them. This was a crazy reality for them prior to this experience. As it said in the first verse, it says that they were standing around talking about these things. So they knew Peter and John had seen it. The women verified it. The tomb is empty and rumors are circulating. How can this be? Maybe someone stole the body. Someone probably paid off the Roman guards a good sum of money to make this whole thing go away. They had lots of different theories, but do you know what one of their theories was not? Well, maybe he got undead. (laughs) Like they're not even, it's not even, Jesus literally appears to them and rather than think you rose from the grave like you said you would do multiple times over three years, they think they're seeing a ghost. They think it is more plausible that we would see a ghost than that a man would rise from the grave. What's interesting about this is that, you know, 2022, one of the more common sort of skeptical Um, criticisms or views of the Christian resurrection goes something like this. Well, of course, ancient people would believe such a thing, right? 
like the disciples who went on to be martyred, like it was probably a sincere and earnest belief, but it's understandable how such a folklore or fable could get traction among those people. I mean, you know, back then they were primitive, simple, superstitious, religious, mythologically oriented people, right? So they're well-meaning, but, but we, you know, we, I mean... We're not like them. We're enlightened. You know, we're, we're, it's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Like we came later, so we know, but, but I mean, we have the scientific method. We have physiology. We have biology. We have science. And we know someone can't be dead for three days and then get undead. Like we know better. But bless their hearts, these ancient people, they didn't understand science, right? But if you read the text, you see like, that's not the case at all. They don't believe it either. They think, best case, it's a ghost. Certainly he hasn't risen from the grave. They don't believe it for a minute. So how does Jesus first acknowledge or engage their doubts? First thing he does is he encourages them to examine the evidence. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. He invites them to touch. Touch, he says, see, it's me. It's not a ghost, it's me. Come here and feel me. What does he do? He points them to empirical evidence verifiable, quantifiable, tangible, credible evidence. He says, look, man, I'm alive. This is me. Engage the data. And friends, I want you to know that the invitation is the same for us today. Don't be afraid to examine the evidence for the resurrection. I would point you to the historical accuracy, reliability, and and credibility and consistency of the New Testament scriptures, which as we progress in time with archaeology and better um, um, uh, historical methods, proves itself to be more reliable and more verifiable than ever. I would point you to the unknown location of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Why don't we know where it is? It made such a mark on history. Now the travel bureau in Jerusalem will probably tell you they have an idea, but they have no idea, okay? I would point you to the appearance of Jesus to more than 500 people post his resurrection. I would point you to the transformation of the apostles who went from cowards in hiding to courageous missionaries for Christ. I'd point you to the family members of Jesus who grew up with him and nonetheless, after his resurrection, worshiped him as savior, Lord, and Messiah. I'd point you to Jesus' enemies and skeptics such as Saul of Tarsus, who then became a believer and follower of Jesus after he had an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. I'd point you to the rapid spread of Christianity in the first century when they had every reason in the flesh not to claim Christ. In the midst of widespread and bloody persecution, the church exploded. I would point you to the fact that today, in 2022, us enlightened people of the earth, some 2.38 billion people claim to to know and love and follow the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come and look and see. Don't be afraid to investigate the evidence. Use your senses. And the disciples did. They touch his hands. They see his feet. They're with him. But interestingly, it's actually not enough for them. You'll notice in the text, they're not convinced. In fact, look back at the text, verse 41. We pick it up. It says, and while they still disbelieved for joy, that phrase, disbelieve for joy, it's like it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Disbelieve for joy and were marveling. So their jaws on the floor. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? I love that, where he goes with that next. Got a snack? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now, when we read this part, 
when Jesus eats with them, we, we usually see it primarily, and I do too when I read it, is it's another tangible proof of his resurrection, right? Like he's saying, I'm not a ghost. Like you have something to eat. I eat the fish. You can't see it in my tummy. Like I'm, I'm a resurrected person in a body. And it is that. But it's not only that, okay? Here's what I want you to see in the historical context. When you sat down to eat with someone, it meant more than just a meal. It meant then even more than it means to us now. For a cross-reference, maybe you've heard of Revelation 3.20. It's a verse in the last book of the Bible where Jesus, um, it's a letter to this church and Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever comes and opens the door, I'm gonna come in. And what's it say? Save him from their sins, give him eternal life. What's it say? I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And if you're not familiar with that verse, it's like, that's weird. This you know, big grand verse in the last book of the Bible. If you come in, I'm gonna come in and eat with you. Like, are you gonna bring Chick-fil-A? I know it's your chicken, Lord. Um, maybe some Oscars wings. What's, what's, you were gonna eat? Why does he say eat of all things? Here's why. In the first century context, to invite someone in to come in and eat with them was an invitation not just to a meal, but to friendship. It was to relationship. It was their DTR, define the relationship. When I invite you over for dinner, it means I like you and want to be your friend. Come and sit down and have a meal with me. And so what Jesus is saying is, yes, examine the evidence, but also come into relationships, sit down and eat with me. Moreover, he knows they're not yet fully convinced, but he's saying, guess what? You can bring your doubts with you. You can bring your fears with you. You may not have all your questions answered, but you can actually, with your doubts, reservations, concerns, I'm not sure how the, all this fits together, come into relationship and be with me. Why? Because I'm alive. Yes, examine the evidence, but also examine my heart and see if I'm not real in your life. And for the disciples, it wasn't the evidence, it was relationship that is the turning point for them. This is where it starts to sink in. And candidly, I want to tell you, this is my story as well. Very similar. I didn't meet Jesus in this way, but I did have skepticism and doubt. So I grew up in a little town, Waverly, went to a little Lutheran church, wonderful church experience. We were semi-religious, went semi-regularly and had a, a good experience, learned all the Sunday school lessons, all of that. But then fast forward, I kind of got to early high school when the world kind of, I don't know, kind of like comes, you wake up to things more than you, than you did before. And you start to question some things that you used to assume. Now, if I'm honest, it was in that season of my life that I started thinking about all these lessons that I learned about in Sunday school. And candidly, they sounded more like fable and folklore than they did history and reality, right? Can I just say that? Um, and I thought, really? Like Noah and a flood and a big boat and the animals? Like, it's neat in a Sunday school book, but really? You know, Jonah and a whale, three days? Like, how did he breathe? And like, oh, Jesus died on a cross, and now I get to go to heaven. And it's like, these are wonderful things, but, but really, as a rational human, right? Is, it, is this real? And I wanted to believe in Jesus. I wanted to be a Christian, but I had to be honest about my doubts and think, is, is this real? I got to like kind of do a little due diligence before I really sell out to this whole Jesus program. And so I started with what very little resources I had at the time, meaning there was no internet then, because yes, I'm old like that. So yes, kids, there was no internet, no Google to search. I, I didn't have access to a wide array of books, but I started to just ask these questions. And since there wasn't a lot of resources at the time, 
I was too embarrassed to really ask my parents or my little small-time pastor, and so I actually internalized those doubts, and it turned into a great bit of shame. Like, I didn't want, I, I love God, I think, if he's real. You know, I'm not trying to, to run, but really, I, I had this intellectual wrestle. And what finally won me over, you know what it was? It wasn't evidence, though I did find some good evidence, and though since becoming a Christian, I found a great mountain of evidence. What won me over was relationship. I went to this little Bible study, I've talked about it before on Sundays, my junior year of high school, and we studied the book of Romans. And as I read the word of God, I'm, I'm learning about God's righteousness, God's justice, God's grace, forgiveness of sins in Jesus, imputed righteousness, a new identity in Christ, eternal life, and I'm reading these things, and I only understand maybe 20% at best. But as I'm reading it, I realize something switched in my heart, I don't know how to explain it, but it felt like I transitioned from reading a historical document to reading my own biography. It's like, yes, this is it, and this is me, and sin is not this ethereal outside idea. It's not something that like real bad people do that are in jail. It's like it's something that's in me, and Christ offers a substitute, and, and, and I never had that like Baptist church, like walk down the aisle and give your life to Jesus moment, but it was sometime in that Bible study that it was like, Lord, I think you're knocking on the door of my heart, whatever that looks like. And would you come in? And he did. When he says he will come, he will come. Scripture says somewhere else, it's coming to me in the moment, I can't remember the reference. It says, if you seek the Lord, when you seek the Lord, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. And it was like, I was like, Lord, are you real? And what won me over wasn't just evidence. It was a confirmation of relationship with God in my heart. He said, yeah, I'm your father and you're my son, and I'm adopting you in through the blood of Jesus Christ. It was relationship that won me over. It was real to me when I was 16, and it's even realer to me now at 39. I wanna ask you, have you entered into that relationship? Like the disciples, maybe you still have a little skepticism, maybe you have a little bit of doubt. Jesus says, bring all that, sit down, let's have lunch together. Open the door of your heart, and we're gonna work through this stuff together. Jesus is alive, and he is appearing through evidence and relationship. Here's the second thing I wanna show you from the text, though. Jesus is alive, and he is appearing through the Bible and fulfilled prophecy. Let me show you. Go to the next verse, verse 44. It says, and he said to them, quote, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me that's Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's shorthand for all of the Old Testament, okay, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, all they had was the Old Testament, and said to them, quote, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what I want you to see here is that Jesus has shown them evidence. He's okay going empirical evidence. Look, see, examine, see if it's really me. He's entered into relationship. He's eaten food with them. But here we see he doesn't want their faith to just rest in personal experience and miracles. He wants them to see that this resurrection is actually embedded in every page of scripture. He wants them to see that this is nothing new. This is not a freak miracle. This is the very centerpiece of redemptive history that God has been planning since the very beginning of time. And it says in verse 44 that Jesus essentially led a Bible study. If I could go back and listen to any Bible study, it would be this one. It said he opened their minds how all the scriptures were speaking about him. 
Again, all they have is the Old Testament, but he's helping them see this has been God's plan A from Genesis all the way to the end. Let me just walk you through the books of the Old Testament. He helped them see that in Genesis, Jesus was the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That in Exodus, Jesus was the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In Leviticus, he was the great high priest who was interceding for his people. In Numbers, it was Jesus who was the water in the desert, the living water for his people. In Deuteronomy, Jesus was the coming prophet who was said to be greater than Moses. In Joshua, it was Jesus who was the commander of the Lord's army, defeating our ultimate enemies and judges. Jesus is the picture of the true judge, the one that came to liberate us from evil and injustice. In Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. First, second Samuel, Jesus is the greater prophet and priest that is pictured there. In first and second Kings, Jesus is the greater king who came to rule. First and second Chronicles, Jesus is the promised son of David who said would come and reign eternally. In Ezra and Nehemiah that we just studied, it's a picture of Jesus who came to restore our worship, that we would worship in spirit and truth and to protect his people. In Esther, Jesus is the advocate putting his life on the line to restore us to royalty. In Job, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. In the Psalms, Jesus is the holy one who would not see decay. In Proverbs, Jesus is personified wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, it's Jesus who is our true meaning. In Song of Solomon, I'm halfway through, Jesus is our faithful and devoted love. In Isaiah, it's Jesus who's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he is the one who assumes the wrath of God on our behalf. In Ezekiel, it's Jesus who is the son of man. In Daniel, it's referring to Jesus as the one who is in the fire with us. In Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband who remains with us even though we betray him in infidelity. In Joel, it's Jesus sending in spirit. In Amos, it's Jesus delivering justice. In Obadiah, Jesus is the picture of the judge who um, um, punishes those who do evil. In Amos, he is the one who delivers justice to the oppressed. In Jonah, Jesus is the greater missionary who pursues the undeserving in mercy. In Micah, Jesus is the one who casts our sins into the sea of of forgetfulness. In Nahum, Jesus is the one proclaiming world peace beyond our imagination. Habakkuk, it's Jesus who crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, it's Jesus who is the warrior who is mighty to save that we sing about today. In Haggai, it's Jesus who restored worship. In Zechariah, it's Jesus who is the pierced Messiah, pierced for our transgressions, it prophesies. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness who brings healing to his people. And that's just the Old Testament. All the New Testament is written about him. Jesus opened their minds. It's like, guys, I'm alive, touch, feel, see me, eat with me, but just know this isn't new. This is God's plan A from the beginning. It's in your Bible that you've always been reading. Their minds were open. Did you know that in the Old Testament, there were over 300 prophecies prophesying the person and work of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled them. Even though this book is 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over about 1,500 years, it is telling one story culminating in what we're celebrating today. It is all about Jesus. I want to show you a picture. This, this is a picture 
scripture, it's the Bible in order, Genesis on the left, Revelation on the right. And what it does, it's an image of internal cross-references and fulfilled prophecies within the Bible itself. So every connection between two texts where they refer to one another or prophecy that is fulfilled in the text is connected with the colored line. And this picture shows us visually what the Bible does textually, which is tell one unified, cohesive story culminating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all revealing his character, his heart, his mission, his purpose, and his work. He is revealing himself to us through scripture. So when verse 45 says he opened their minds, it's like light bulb moment. He appeared to them, not just through miracle, evidence, relationship, but through scripture. Guys, this is the plan A. This is reality from beginning to the very end. And so City Light, very practically for us, man, you want to hear from Jesus? You want to know Jesus? You want to, you want to see Jesus? Look no further than this book. This is the living and active word of God. So many of us, how many of you have heard this thought in your own head or said it out loud or heard someone else? If I had just seen the resurrected Jesus or if I had just seen a miracle or if I had just met Jesus, then it would just get me over that final hump. I've thought, I've thought that. But you know what? It's not true. How do I know the disciples had all that and it didn't do the trick for them? What won their hearts was the witness of the word of God. It was this book. There is power in this book to open our minds to see Jesus. Jesus appears to us through scripture. It is his very word. It's living and active. This is no ordinary book. It's not just words on a page. This is God's living word, and he appears to us through his word. Jesus is alive, and he appears through the word and through fulfilled uh, prophecy. Here's the last one I want to show you. Jesus is alive, and he is appearing through lives changed in power through lives change in power. Let me show you from the last two verses, verse 48, it says, he's talking to his disciples there. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father, that's the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So last, you know, sort of scene in this little moment in scripture, verse uh, um, Verse 49, Jesus leaves them with this promise. He's going to send the Holy Spirit and they're going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth of the gospel. What's striking about this is the context and how unlikely it is. <clears throat> Again, there's four sort of biographies of Jesus. There's a parallel one called John in his telling of this exact same account. It tells us where they are when Jesus appears to them and they are in a locked room. Here's what happened. They see Jesus get crucified for you know, what he's doing, they realize everyone knows that they're his followers and they realize uh, we might be next. So what do they do? They tuck tail, they run back to a room, they lock the door. I picture them like putting a couch in front of the door and they're like in fetal position, okay? This is like God's mighty army. They're behind the locked door and Jesus says, I'm gonna bring some power to you and you guys are gonna be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And you read it again on face level and you're like, Jesus, you could have picked a better team. You know, these guys are, they're not really Navy SEALs wanting to take the next mountain. They're like self-preservation mode, fearful, cowardly men. In fact, you remember what Peter was doing the night Jesus was betrayed. He denied Jesus to who? A preteen little girl. Heard his accent. Oh, wait, aren't you one of those Galileans? Do you know Jesus? Jesus who? 
I know a Jesus Smith, Jesus Christ, no one ever met him. You know, I, everything to distance themselves and self, that's Peter. He's a coward. Fast forward to Acts chapter two. Shortly after this, the Holy Spirit comes. That's what happens when we believe in Jesus. His spirit comes and lives in our heart and he changes us. And the same Peter who is cowardly denying Jesus, cowardly hiding from Jewish men, thinking that he might get killed by them as well. What does he do? He stands up before thousands of Jewish men and he says, oh, that Jesus, yeah, I know him. And he's God, and he's the king, not Caesar. And he's alive, and he's Lord. And you guys killed him, but he loves you anyway, so repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And what happens? 3,000 bow their knee to King Jesus. What a scene. What a transformation. He is not who he once was. The rest of the the apostles, the rest of the disciples, the same thing. They go from, from cowardly hiding to boldly and courageously on mission in the world. Why? They've seen their Lord alive. It dawns on them, man, death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. If I die, so be it. My next moment, I will see my living Lord. They've been filled with the Spirit, and they are new men. Death is now just a graduation to glory, so it really frees you up to really live when you know death isn't that big of a deal. That's these men. They're changed in power. In fact, all of them go to die a, a martyr's death except for the apostle John who dies likely of old age because of their courageous mission and, and fervor for Jesus Christ. City Light, here's what I want you to see. I want you to know that this kind of transformation didn't just stop in the first century, okay? This Jesus who rose on this day is still alive and he's still here and he is still changing lives in power. I've seen this play out in the New Testament. I've seen it play out in my life. I've seen it play out in lives around me. I've seen it my friend Chris. He grew up insecure from being abandoned by his dad. He had all kinds of daddy wounds, issues, insecurity, tried to find his identity in sports and in pleasure and dumb stuff, and then he met Jesus. And now Chris is a beast for the gospel, secure in Jesus Christ, living his life for his glory alone. I've seen it my friend Todd, who sat in the back in the last hour. When he was young growing up, he lived his life for money. He thought, if I can just get success and finances, I'll be secure. That was what he was pursuing. His rest was alcohol. That was his escape. That was his peace. And then he met the living Jesus and everything changed. Now he uses money to worship God and to fuel his mission. And he finds his rest in being a child of God through Christ. In the front row, uh, my friend um, uh, Kelly sat in the first hour and she got baptized right here in February. And I love her story because she wasn't um, chasing a bunch of wild. She was the good church girl. She was kind of like me. She grew up in a church, knew all the Sunday school answers, but none of it hit her heart. And instead of knowing the living Jesus, she tried empty religion and it didn't give her the answers. And it actually led her to lead a life that was um, committed to just pleasing other people. It actually led to where she thought she would never go, which was addiction to mask the pain and the insecurity and the phoniness that she was living until she met the living Jesus. And she was freed from other people's opinions of her. She was freed from her addictions. Now she carries the biggest smile on her face and lives confidently for the glory of Jesus. My story was similar. Uh, if you guys know me, I didn't have a real rebellious childhood. Like I said, I didn't run from God by being really, really bad. But what I realized in hindsight is I think I was running from God's grace by being really, really good. I thought, if I can just do the church thing, keep a certain kind of moral appearance and play by the rules and stay out of the radar, then like, I won't train wreck my life like the other guys. And what I was really saying is then I won't need God's grace like the other guys. But here's what happened. I gave myself to empty religious rule keeping and performing and it actually just left me proud, stiff, and dead on the inside. But then I met Jesus. 
And he showed me that his grace was greater than the sin I didn't even admit that I had. He showed me that his righteousness, which he gifted to me, was eternally greater than any righteousness I could earn on my own. He showed me that when I'm honest in my weakness and in my sin, I actually find a bold confidence in his strength, not my own. And he freed me from weak and powerless religion and self-righteousness to a man who can walk confidently in God's grace and knowing that I'm a child of God. Friends, stories like these are being rewritten every day all around us. This room is filled with them. I could talk about Jake Fouch. I could talk about my wife. I could talk about what I want you to see. Jesus is alive. How does he appear to us? Certainly there's evidence. He invites you into relationship. Most important is the word of God, but there are testimonies all around us that he is alive because lives are still being changed in power. I want to ask you as candidly and sincerely as I can, have you met this Jesus? Guys, this is more than religion. This is more than folklore or fable. This is reality. This is prime reality. There is a God who is real. He has a moral standard for the perfect world that he created, and we have all missed the mark. But he offers redemption, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, but it all comes down to this. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you received his grace? Have you admitted your sin? Have you bowed your knee in your allegiance to him? His invitation this morning is bring your sins, give them to him, receive his grace and forgiveness and walk newness of life. Jesus said, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, get this promise, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus' invitation for you this morning, if you have not yet, is to take an active, personal, decisive step to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Is he calling your name this morning? How do I know? Is he speaking to your, to your soul, to your heart? Is he confirming in your spirit that he is calling you to salvation? If he is, don't harden your heart. Bend your knee. Tell him, I hear you at the door. I open the door. Come in and eat with me. I'm a sinner, would you save me by your grace? He gladly answers that prayer. And for all of us, I'm gonna pray in just a moment. If you've already prayed that prayer, would you respond in like joyful singing? Can we worship not just with our mouths, but with our hearts, with our lives? Guys, this is real. Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, we're gonna live forever. We're gonna be with him. Christians in the room, a thousand years from now, we're going to be high-fiving in new bodies. We're going to feel more alive than we feel right now. This will feel like a shadow of life. The greatest days are yet to come. I'll turn 40 this year, and for some of you think that's young. Some of you think that's really old. I'm right in the middle. I'm this awkward. Anyway, I'm starting to feel it right? Like my body doesn't respond the same way and, and my knees don't feel the same. And like what hurts? Everything. I just need Advil. Why? I don't know because it's the morning. I just need Advil every day. <laughs> I think of the scripture, outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And these bodies are going to betray us, but we're going to get new bodies. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, you too will rise to be with me and you will rise to be like me and you will rise to be with me for all of eternity. And so because of Easter, the brightest days are ahead of all of us who trust in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, what an amazing thing we get to celebrate on Easter. We have a living God. On Good Friday, we were in this room, many of us, and it was a somber day. It was a dark day. It was a day that we remembered the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, that it was our sins that nailed you to a tree, that we were the disobedient ones, that we have a glorious, amazing God, and we ran from you and rebelled, but you paid the price. 
Yesterday was the looming in between. We knew that our sins were paid for and yet we were still longing and waiting. But this morning is a morning of celebration. This morning is a day that we recognize you are alive. These prayers don't hit the ceiling. You are with us. You are the omnipresent God. Jesus is alive and in this room and you are still appearing to people even right now. So Lord, I don't even know a third of the people in this room right now, but I, I'm just wondering if you didn't bring some people here this morning because you wanted to appear to them for the first time. God, if you were stirring in their hearts, would you give them all the confidence and faith to just acknowledge that in this moment right now, to just simply pray with me. God, I believe you're real. I still have my doubts. I have my reservations. I have my, my insecurities and my fears, but God, I think you are maybe opening my heart to you. And, and I just want to acknowledge with all of my doubt and fears and insecurity, um, God, if there is a moral law, I have missed that mark. I've disappointed friends, disappointed myself. I have missed the mark. And yet I believe that Jesus, you are the atoning sacrifice. You came to pay for sins, not of your own, because you had none. You came to pay for mine. And on that cross, it was an incredibly personal thing for me. My sins were paid for on that cross. Jesus, I believe. And then I believe that you rose again on the third day that sin was actually conquered, that though I have to die, I don't have to stay dead, but I too will rise on that last day to be with you forever. And I receive that salvation by grace that I could never earn by merit. I trust you, come into my life. You are my savior, you are my Lord. I express faith in you. And now God, would you help this just to stay real in our mind's eye? Help us to remember prime reality is God in the resurrection and eternal life. Help us to live and rejoice in this moment and in each moment in light of this great truth of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.